You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. Our guest today is Sheikh Soheb Said. Born and bred in Glasgow, Sheikh Soheb has had a varied and colourful journey across many continents to go from a young lad in Bishop Briggs to become the global head for research for the highly respected Bayina Institute founded by Noman Ali Khan. After graduating with a master's in philosophy at Edinburgh University, he completed a degree in Islamic theology at the prestigious Al-Azhar University in Cairo, specialising in tafsir and Quranic sciences. He has had a long-standing passion for the Quran, particularly recitation and tafsir, having received licences in Quranic recitation from several authorities and founding the organisation Quranica.com. If that was not enough, he is completing a PhD at SOAS, University of London and regularly teaches Arabic and Quranic studies as well as serving as an honorary Muslim chaplain at Glasgow and Edinburgh University. Sheikh Soheb Said, Assalamu alaikum and welcome. Wa alaikum salam wa So you clearly have a passion for studying and academia. What is it about learning and knowledge that gives you so much pleasure? I think for me it's um, it's a human urge. Um I think we all try to strive towards perfection. You know, maybe it's a strong word, but as human beings, we we have uh, weaknesses and we have um, deficiencies. But we are always trying to fill in and improve on on what we have and what we've been given. So knowledge is just one of those things. Um, Knowledge is one of the the forms of perfection, the way that the Qur'an uh, looks at it. and the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-alim, you know, we, we are striving to gain from his knowledge and to become elevated as human beings that way. So that's really, for me, it was always just questions in my mind. How do I answer this question? I have to go and find someone who knows. Um, or if I'm asking and I'm not finding anyone has got the answer, then I need to try and find out myself somehow. I need to find it in the books or I need to ponder on it further or I need to research a question. So when it comes to eventually doing a degree in, in, in Quranic studies, um, first and foremost, I was doing that for myself. Um, the sense that I do not want to be relying on other people all the time for, for what I know. I want to know for myself and I want to feel confident that, uh, that I do know the reality of things um, and not receiving things secondhand or thirdhand. Um, you know, a lot of times when people maybe go and do a degree in a university like Al-Azhar or some other institute or seminary, you know, the expectation is this person wants to be an imam, a leader, a scholar, a famous speaker or, or whatever. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it's really just they want to know. And if we could get away with just learning and then hiding away in the mountains with our books, that's exactly what we would do. But of course, you know, gaining knowledge then means that we do have some 
responsibility as well to those around us. And this aspect of learning and education, um, has that always come quite naturally to you? Is that something naturally? Because I know some people, you know, couldn't think of anything better than sitting with books and reading and some people just find that really difficult and they need to, you know, that's the last thing that they, you know, studying is a mm. chore almost. So for you, with education and learning and finding some of these answers, was that always quite a natural thing and something that gave you pleasure or was it something you had to work at? I, I think it's been ups and downs for me. Um, you know, as as a child and in school, I was always one of these top of the class people and, uh, um, you know, some might say SWAT or, you know, or whatever. Um, and, you know, doing very well in school, exams and everything. When I got to university, suddenly there was a, a shift of pace and, uh, you know, I, I struggled to keep up. Originally, I was studying physics. Uh, that didn't go too well. I ended up studying a few different subjects in university until finally I graduated in philosophy. And um, partly what was happening, I think, is that um, uh, when something became the thing that I have to study, that sense of pressure, you know, made it quite difficult to study that thing. I was always interested in the side pursuit. So even when I was studying physics, I was doing extremely well in philosophy as my outside courses. Um, so, of course, Islamic studies has always been there um, since a young age as something important, but it was never my degree course, for example. Um, so it was always easy to remain very passionate about uh, about those things. And also because ultimately you're learning something that's benefiting you in a way completely different from what um, your normal academic studies benefit. Um, so I guess I was a bit worried when I actually turned my uh, full-time focus towards Islamic studies, am I going to end up disliking it? Like I was disliking physics and and other things on, on along the way. Uh, but alhamdulillah, I think that I, I matured just in time uh, to be able to not respond in the same way to Quranic studies as I ha- had to some of my early degree studies. You alluded a little bit, I guess, about the responsibility of knowledge. And you said, you know, many scholars or learned people might just prefer to, you know, the endeavour of knowledge and learning. And if that was it, I mean, what do you, what do you mean? Do you think there is a certain responsibility once you have this knowledge to do it? And what is that responsibility then? Well, um, in the first place, you know, levels of knowledge and um, ranks and so on is, is quite relative. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that the amount of studies I've done really qualifies for any kind of title that people like to give you. And, um, you know, if I was still in Egypt, you know, it would not be the case. You know, it's like, oh, you've just done a bachelor's degree. Oh, that's very nice. Where's your master's? Where's your doctorate? Um, before you can even start to be considered a, a person of knowledge, an advanced uh, student even. Um, whereas, you know, obviously in the West, our situation is different. So we don't demand that high level of expertise from everyone. Um, and that's just important to know. I think it's important that someone knows that about themselves uh, if, if they're under, you know going through that um, system. Not to believe their own hype as well. Sometimes we get a bit you know, carried away with titles and, and expectations. Um, but yes, I think that um, we just have a lot of needs in our community here. One of those needs is to serve people's uh, knowledge needs. 
and we've got to do that however we can and if there aren't ready readily available people who are uh, you know properly you know and 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 we'd all you know all of us would want to learn from them and uh, there'd be no doubt about their mastery of the knowledge if not them then you know people like myself have to do what we can uh, but i think as long as we're all honest about it and so do you think it's a it's a problem sometimes when um the community or individuals put people on such a pedestal maybe with very very little knowledge and i guess you mentioned that how it's relative sometimes in terms of the context that you're in um i mean somebody that does very limited studies and gets highly elevated i mean does that some does that irk you or does that sort of bother you in terms of are there concerns around that or is it just a natural thing that we should just go with the flow and say okay people you know you should respect whatever knowledge is out there i think we should you know respect whatever people do um but people should be very upfront and straightforward and honest about what they've done and what they've not done um i have sometimes seen people who stick things in their cv which are either false or just um worded in a way to be misleading um that sort of thing is is deeply troubling to me um putting people on pedestals i think that you know respecting scholars and respecting you know learned people people who are uh, somehow doing things and serving this deen and serving the community that only um is good for us you know to show that respect we benefit from giving them respect and giving them their place uh society benefits from that um but the flip side is that those who are receiving that respect need to be um deeply uh, ingrained in 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 tarbiya and you know development and have the oversight of of um you know senior people over them who can who can remind them of their um of their duties and can keep their feet on the ground um and and avoid sort of ego taking over because that's a human trait and um you know when someone receives adulation 24/7 uh it's not that surprising that the shaitan would have a way of um using that against them mm. and i guess linked to that is i guess you're saying even for these people of knowledge or or whatever area you're in knowing your limitations is really important as well yeah knowing your pay grade as well i mean they, they put it that way certain questions might come to you that you realize right this is not the kind of question that someone like me should tackle mm. we're going to need to find someone who can tackle it so people that study particularly religious knowledge can uh, often focus on different areas within Islam, the whole islamic sciences and you've chosen to focus particularly on tafsir uh, what made you or attracted you towards this line of specialization it's really just natural for me the fascination with the quran um started um you know i guess as as a teenager i was first um you know i i grew up you know knowing about the quran of course and learning surahs and learning namaz and all these things um but there was two kind of awakenings for me about um that this deen is actually truth and that this is actually uh valuable for me and I, that's i have to hold on to this and seek after this one of them was uh, reading uh, ahmed didat's book the choice because that exposed me to the idea that you know islam has actually got reasonable arguments behind it and even you can use those to debate with people of other religions and 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 win these arguments and maybe that's not the approach that i continue to focus on but it was inspiring at the time 
And the other one was hearing uh, the Quran recitation of uh, Imam Sudais and Shuraim, um, some CDs that I got at one event. And uh, when I started listening to it and I heard the Imams, how they would enunciate the, the verses and how even at certain points their voice would crack and they would cry. And I would think, you know, what is it that's making them cry? What is it that's impacting them so much? Um, and that made me realize that this Qur'an is a very powerful thing and a very meaningful thing. Um, so I used to always, uh, you know, use my eyes to follow the translation, like Yusuf Ali translation, while listening to the uh, the recitation on the, I think it was a CD by then, it was there were already CDs on the market. And, and that's what really got me passionate about the Qur'an. It really just stemmed from there. I actually remember, and I was going to mention this, is that I remember... Um, when we used to go to some events, I remember you used to sit there with the Quran and your headphones on, and listen. And at that time, I thought, Mashallah, you know, that you know, he's clearly got this attachment there. And I guess we we want to know where you would end up many years later. I think at that time you were probably just still in school or finishing off school. So we're going to cast you away to this desert island. Um, tell us about the first item that you're going to take with you. So. The first one is um, an ayah of the Qur'an, which is in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 207. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim which means, and of the people, is such as sells himself, seeking means to the approval of Allah, and Allah is kind to his servants. And the reason this um, is significant to me is that, um, according to you know the tafsir, um, it's commonly said that this ayah was revealed about a particular companion of the Prophet ﷺ, and that companion is called Suhaib. Suhaib al-Rumi, he's usually known as. And um, needless to say, my father, my mother named me after this Sahabi. Funnily enough, many people don't know his name. Um, they get confused at my name and think it should be something else that it's not like Shu'aib or, or Suhail. Um, and this is a Sahabi who was a very important one, very significant one. And the incident surrounding this verse is that he um, was making migration to the Prophet and uh, gave up all his wealth in order to be able to do so. Um, and when he reached the Prophet ﷺ, he was told, your transaction has been successful. Um, so it's a very meaningful ayah to me because when I read it, it connects me with that particular companion. And I do believe that names have um, a deeply embedded meaning, whether it be that the word has a meaning or that it's connected to a person or it's connected to what the parents intended by choosing that name. Um, so I'm thankful to my parents for naming myself and also my brothers after companions of the Prophet um, which inspires us with their story and inspires us with their sacrifice. And I guess linked with that element of sacrifice, clearly for people that, you know, have achieved or, you know, on the path of you know, achieving things in life, it, it does take an element of sacrifice and determination and effort. Um, for yourself personally, I mean, what sort of sacrifices do you think 
have been the most meaningful ones that you've had to make along the journey over the years? Uh, it's hard to say, really. I mean, I'd have to be honest and say probably my wife has made more sacrifice than me um, in some of the big uh, steps that we've taken, you know, pretty much uh, the month after marrying her, I took her away to Cairo for the full-time studies at uh, Al-Azhar. Um, and I think that there's so many choices that you make and you don't know what would have happened if you'd chosen differently. Um, and um, sometimes, you know, if I think, why didn't I work harder as a physicist? And, you know, nowadays I, I might be working in a physics lab or or in a university as a, you know, Stephen Hawking type uh, professor or something. I just don't know. But I know that if I'd taken that other path, you know, I wouldn't be the person that I am now. So I think everything that you do, mistakes and all, contributes to, 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 to making you who you are. Um, so I don't know what I may have sacrificed. You know, I don't know what I could have had otherwise if I'd not taken the path I have. I feel like I've just gained you know, I've just gained, I've not, I've not lost anything. So were there any regrets about ch- those changes at university or in hindsight, you know, years later? Do you, do you wonder, you know? Well, you know, I, I can regret, or I, I don't celebrate my lack of application to physics, you know. I, you know, I, I encourage everyone to, to work hard at what they're doing. But um, I'm grateful to my parents again that they did not uh, force me to, to follow through something that clearly wasn't working for me. Um, and they were responsive to my need to to find something else. And was that was that just you were distracted with other stuff, or you just you couldn't get into the subject, or what was? Because um, you, you know, you know, you're ducks at school. You're on a clear trajectory academically. Mm. You know, I'm sure you could have done it. What, what was it about that? I mean, I guess it's it's part of the way life has turned out. But I guess you know, what was it around that time that said actually. Was it just this is not for me? I'm not interested, or you just you you were there, doing other stuff and your mind wasn't focusing. There was a lot of distraction, um, and I always have been heavily involved in, you know, certain community activities, and funnily enough, heavily involved during Ramadan that particular year, when I uh, when I started at uni, uh, that was when I did the astonishing facts series. It was that very year, um, but I'm wary about mentioning those things because. I just don't feel it's fair to place blame on the activities mm. or on the organizations or on the community work. Um, it's really a question of balance. It's a question of um, um, of doing what's in your capacity to do. Um, but there were a number of factors. I was commuting to Edinburgh and uh, um, struggling to really maintain that. I had a close friend, well, he's still a close friend, mashallah, who was studying medicine at the same time as me commuting as well from Glasgow but he applied himself you know really solidly to it and got his medical degree um, so it can be done tell us about the next item the next item is uh, an ayah from Surah Ar-Rahman it's um, a surah that's very beloved to many many people probably everyone um, and I love the whole surah um, but this particular ayah here, number 60, And I was remembering this because of what I said before about uh, Imam Sudais and, and listening to those recordings. 
Uh, I still remember his voice and how he recites it, though I haven't listened to that in so many years. Um, you know, this ayah has a sense, is, there a, is the reward for good anything but good? And that, I think, is such a powerful concept. Uh, first of all, the concept of ihsan, you know, in contrast to what we were talking about here, it's, it's applying yourself in, in excellence and doing the best that you can possibly do. Um, and that means in your work, in your studies, whatever it may be, and also doing good to people and being good to those around you. Um, and here it's almost like you're doing good to Allah by worshipping Him, and the reward for that would be nothing except ihsan from Him, which He's been giving you all along. Um, but also, like when I mention someone like Imam Sudais, you know, it's just I'm remembering someone who had done something which influenced me, you know, years and years ago. I think it's just very important that you you recognize the good that people do you, however small it may be, however simple it may be. Um, it's not always uh, uh, the kind of thing that would receive a medal, you know, of honor. Um, those people might not be celebrated publicly or whatever. But you have to know in your heart that so many people around you have done things that have helped you um, to be who you are today. And just to remember that. And that's ihsan towards them. You know, the ihsan that they've done to you, the least you can do is to remember them, make dua for them, um, you know, and, and, and be positive towards them. I mentioned earlier, I guess, one of the areas that you've particularly known for, and, you know, fair to say you're an expert in, is, uh, is about. The recitation of the Quran, and you've got various permissions to uh, to recite and teach in, in in that whole domain. I mean, what took you? What was the journey like? Starting off from sitting with the headphones on and reading the Quran to actually mastering, you know, the whole discipline. I mean, what just give us a flavour of what the path has been along along the way. Well, first of all, I can't say that I mastered anything. I still feel it's mastering me, but. Um, it's interesting that uh, we're talking about these headphones and so on because I think the first thing I did was try to imitate um, those imams, Sudais, Shuraim, that kind of thing. Um, at least in terms of the way they're pronouncing, and I and I started to learn what I thought was tajweed. Um, the problem was that I had not realized that tajweed is actually a discipline where there's actually rules and you have to know what happens to a noon in this situation, what happens to a lamb in that situation. Um, I thought Tajweed was just like sounding nice and sounding a bit Arab if possible. Uh, and I, I remember that I was actually put in front of people at some events um, to recite. Uh, I, I, can, I can really picture it. Um, uh, and people used to say to me, so hey, mashallah, you've got good Tajweed. Because <laughs> they also didn't know what Tajweed was. It was only when um, I took my first trip abroad in 2002 that was to Jordan for a summer course. That was my first exposure to really the Arabic language. And we had a teacher there who taught us Tajweed. Actually, he's, he's, he's quite a famous guy. He's famous for his nasheeds more than his uh, Quran now. But he's a beautiful reciter. He's also a, a nasheed singer called Yahya Hawa. He's like the singer of the Syrian revolution. Um, that's, you know, his journey has taken him. At that time, he was maybe a master's student or something in the place that we were studying. And, um, you know, I realized at that point, oh my goodness, I actually don't know Tajweed. Um, and, but I took to it really passionately. So then just uh, to be honest, um, 
I haven't had such a conventional route with regards to Tajweed. Like, I didn't have a lengthy time with one teacher or one program or school. Um, Alhamdulillah, I have the ability to correct something quickly if someone points out a mistake or, a, you know, some inaccuracy in my pronunciation. I can pick that up and then I can also fix it throughout the Quran. I don't have to relearn everything. Um, so what's happened is that I had chances to encounter with different teachers over the, the, the few years after that. And then, you know, um, someone that I knew in Dundee, he's now back in Palestine or somewhere, you know, he, by that time he was in Dundee. And he said to me, do you have ijazah? Which means, you know, the, the license to, you know, to transmit Quran or other sciences. And I said, no, I don't, never occurred to me that I might be able to do that. He said, yeah, just come and recite with me. Um, so, you know, I, I recited to him for a little while and he gave me ijaza in what I recited to him. Um, and I didn't take that as mastery by any means. I really took it as an encouragement that someone had seen that in me that I was capable of doing this. So then, you know, when I had more opportunities in Egypt and elsewhere, I would spend time with teachers as far as possible, read to them. And, you know, eventually I, I met the teacher that I really needed, a very strict one in Cairo. This was around 2008, 2009. Um, and I only got to recite to him, you know, up until, the, you know, just a little bit into Surah An-Nisa, so a few Jews of the Qur'an. But it was hard-earned, you know, really hard-earned um, because he's proper strict and, to be honest, even uses corporal punishment on grown men. <laughs> so, and was this when you had moved to Egypt at that point? Was this still a... This was while I was um, oh. studying Arabic okay. in, in Egypt. So I was still there for periods of time yeah. and coming back. Yeah, and this before getting married as well when I had more time to, to just sit with sheikhs. So you still got the scars? <laughs> well, you know what? Um, he, he really inflicted that corporal punishment on the people that were close to him so it was only a bit later on that I finally got a small taste of it a little bit clip around the ear uh, and to be honest I don't encourage that but uh, in the context it was it was kind of an honor and what is I mean I guess for people listeners um, that find it difficult in this whole area of learning or speaking Arabic correct recitation I mean, what are, the, what are the pointers? What are the first few things that they should start with? It's kind of a sad point to put it like this, but I was not a madrasa child. And maybe in the long term, that was a fortunate thing. It's very painful to say that, you know, because I'm sure plenty of people have good experiences as well at madrasas. But, but of course, you hear the scare stories and the, um, the negative outcomes. Um, I think that, you know... Listening to reciters who are very, you know, clear and precise in their recitation. That's the best thing for, you know, to encourage that sense of tajweed. But you should listen to reciters also who inspire you, that you like to listen to their voice, that make you feel the emotions and feel connected to the, to the words as well. So the first category of very precise reciters, um, Sheikh Mahmoud Khalil al-Husari, and Husari is probably like the number one and Sheikh Minshawi also. But I listen to Sheikh Minshawi, to be honest, for the emotional side um, as well. It depends which recordings that you're listening to. Um, but most important, of course, is to have a teacher. I say that, but I know that it's difficult. Um, 
However, it's not as difficult as people make out. You know how many times I hear people say, oh, Wallahi, there's no one, there's no teachers here. And it's like, I'm a teacher. You never knocked on my door. You know, people sometimes just uh, make out that it's impossible to find teachers. Um, we have to be sincere and make an effort as well. Um, unfortunately, you know, what happens sometimes with teachers is they, they overemphasize the strictness, not just with corporal punishment and things, but even just the strictness of tajweed sometimes over, you know, outweighs um, an emphasis on just enjoying recitation and connecting to recitation. I learned that mistake I was making myself as a teacher uh, and I realized that I've got to focus on instilling the love and the confidence. Uh, we need to get people confident to recite, even if they're reciting with mistakes, but they would um, they would only grow, you know, uh, through that experience. So tell us about the next item that you've chosen. Well, the next one I think uh, would be the one that connects with this. It's a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu um, which uh, I'll read the translation of it. It's a hadith in Muslim, authentic hadith. The one who recites the Quran skillfully is ranked with the noble and righteous scribe angels. As for the one who recites with difficulty, stammering or stumbling through its verses, he will have two rewards. Um, so this hadith uh, is dear to me. Um, it's always been dear to me as as encouragement to recite, and it talks about two types of people. The first one is called Al Mahiru bil Quran. I love this hadith so much that I named my son after this person, the Mahir. So my son's called Mahir. Uh, the other one, my daughter, actually is named after a word from Surah Al Rahman. She's called Jannah Which means fruit But the Mahir here Is the one who is proficient and skillful in the Quran And look the reward that's given to this person That that he or she is with the noble and righteous scribe angels Who write the revelation um, So you can't really compare You can't really compare that to, to anything else But most people focus on the second part of this hadith Rightly Because it talks about someone who is stammering and stumbling, stuttering, because they find it difficult. That person will have two rewards. Uh, the problem is sometimes people translate this as a double reward, which is ambiguous. And some translations even say, we'll have twice that reward. And this is a pet peeve of mine because it doesn't really make sense to say that someone who finds it difficult and stammers will have double the reward of someone who is skillful and proficient because that would mean we should all try to stammer and stumble instead of becoming proficient. Instead, the person who's stammering and stumbling is promised two rewards, one for the recitation and one for the effort and the sincerity that they're bringing to the, the process. But the hope is that they will reach a level of proficiency and skill where they're able to recite morning and night and recite from their heart and just recite all the time and be skillful also in understanding the Qur'an, applying the Qur'an in their lives um, and spreading its light to those around them. Um, nothing can compare with that. Uh, so to be fair to the to the Mahir, you know, that's why I, I stick up for this. And this whole art of recitation and connection with the Qur'an, is that where your um, Quranica.com project came out of? Tell us a bit about where that started from and what that's about and I guess where it is now. So Quranica was um, something that emerged from an idea I had around 2005 
which seems an awfully long time ago now, um, I was a student and was just thinking about, you know, how beautiful Quran recitation could be used to reach out to, to all people, not just Muslims. Um, presenting Quranic recitation as an art form. And of course, you know, with that, it's, it's, it's da'wah, you know, but da'wah also, you know, inviting to Islam, we often do it in our own words, in our own ways, in our own techniques. But the Prophet Sallallahu used to do da'wah with the Quran and with other techniques, sure. But first and foremost, it was a call to the Quran, to listen to the Quran being recited, to hear its words, to understand its message. So I wanted to restore this um, focus. Um, and so we started with an event as part of the Edinburgh Festival, because I was doing a lot of, you know, I was still studying in Edinburgh, of course. Um, and we had a good precedent of um, Muslims getting involved in the Edinburgh festivals every August. And that still goes on. Um, but at that time, I organized uh, a kind of concert. You know, we didn't call it a concert. We didn't use that word. But we it was in a concert hall. That's the point. And um, people who come to the Edinburgh festivals are attending, you know, opera and comedy and film and uh, all sorts of different performances. So we try to frame it in a way that fit into that context. Um, we called it the glorious recital. The recital is a kind of translation of the word Quran anyway. Um, but recital, people understand opera recital, piano recital, you know, it connects with them. So that was really the idea. Um, and that event, you know, we had an, a few different reciters came from uh, around the UK we projected the translation of what they're reciting onto big screens. We just created an atmosphere. And that particular event went really well. We actually made a DVD out of it as well, subsequently. And it set the stage for uh, more events of this kind over the coming years. And we did this in different places. We did it in um, some universities. We did it in uh, the Islam Expo event twice in London. Uh, we did it in the... Cardiff uh, National Theatre and that was my favourite event of all the theme of that one was the Prophets of Peace and um, so naturally it was about stories of the Prophets from the Quran and it was all funded by uh, you know by non-Muslims you know putting it frankly by public bodies because they appreciated the you know the artistic content they were doing and we reached um, non-Muslims for sure we did reach some I will say, um, and it was always pitched at the level of someone who doesn't really know the Quran, doesn't believe in the Quran even. But what was surprising to me early on was how much the Muslims themselves were in need of this project and how they'd never seen anything like it because they didn't have the habit of listening to the Quran with translation. You know what I used to do, like you're saying, with the headphone and the and the copy of Quran in front of me? That's what we were creating for people. They're hearing the recitation, but it's being done live. Uh, they're seeing a reciter, and there's something to be said about this live experience. But they're also reading the translation on the screen. And many people just had not done anything like that before in their homes or anywhere else. So Quranica came from that, and then it kind of took a pause when I went abroad for my own studies. Um, but then 
in the last few years, we've focused on taking it towards making films um, and using some of the, the footage that we took from our early events. Those things are now turning into um, some new productions and so on that just to sort of fit the the way things are going and you know people's engagement. Uh, videos are very important nowadays. So tell us about the next item you're going to take with you. Uh, the next item um, is uh, to represent my my travels because we've been speaking a fair bit about that. And uh, this is an ayah from Surah Al-Isra. Um, Allah says in verse 80 of, of uh, Surah 17, وَقُلْ رَبِّ أَدْخِلْنِي مُدْخَلَ صِدْقٍ وَأَخْرِجْنِي مُخْرَجَ صِدْقٍ وَجَعَلْ لِي مِنْ لَدُنْكَ سُلْطَانًا نَصِيرًا And say, My Lord, cause me to enter a sound entrance and to exit a sound exit and grant me from yourself a supporting authority. You know, here we just feel the weakness of translation, really. It's difficult to, uh, to, to capture that grandeur. But, you know, when I've been making so many entrances to countries and exits and I remember that when I finally left Egypt and this was 2013 this is what I posted as my Facebook status you know on the day that I was leaving um, because I just felt that you know I felt that connection with this meaning that how much I need Allah to make the next step successful you know to, to make my departure from that stage of studies successful and to make my entrance into a new phase of life successful and you know my my son was about to be born at that time and uh, and I was planning to start my PhD you know in a few months later so I remember how much uh, this ayah meant to me at that time and the whole surah surah al-isra also has a really nice story for me which uh, sticks in my mind that one day I was um just taking a bit of time to recite Quran and I, I came into the Al-Azhar Mosque it's a beautiful mosque by the way it's got a beautiful courtyard um, very serene place to sit and it was a really nice cool weather that day which is a good thing in Egypt um, and I was sitting down and I started to recite Surah Al-Isra and a man came and just sat down next to me and I wasn't really bothered by it I just you know it just turned out he wanted to listen to me reciting. I was just quietly reciting to myself, but he wanted to listen, so I let him listen. And he sat with me for such a long time as I was going through. The, the surah is uh, reasonably long. And just at the last, you know, the last page, you know, right near the end, there's actually a sajda, a prostration. And so when I recited the ayah, um, I went into prostration, he prostrated with me. And it just felt like the most sweet thing in the world that, you know, who are these two people that don't know each other? Here they are, bowing and, 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 you know, falling on their faces before the Almighty, affected by Allah's words. Um, so that that's why this surah, you know, has has a very special bond with me with that time in Egypt and Al-Azhar. Now you're um, from a small number of Scots who studied at the famous Al-Azhar um, in Cairo. Um, so that you talked a bit about your last few days. Do you remember your first day there? What was it like landing and first day at university? What was it like? Well, I'm not sure I do remember. Um, the thing with Egypt was I, I dipped my toes quite a lot before taking the plunge into the into the full-time studies. 
you know so i went there for some arabic studies first and and then we actually had to do high school um and i did the high school in egypt the same year that i was doing my masters in edinburgh um so so that was an experience as well and um by the time i came to the university uh i i do remember some things about the the first day and the orientation there and just seeing this large number of students who were who were sitting there and we um foreigners were just in amongst everyone um in amongst the egyptians and of course people from all different nationalities um and yeah it was quite overwhelming just to just to consider you know where you are and the history of where you are and the thing is that you know a number of people had gone before me um especially various americans and people like imam sohaib web was one of the people who gave me some advice uh before going um and people not so much imam sohaib necessarily but other people were quite uh negative about the experience so in a way they were trying to break my possible illusions about how wonderful and serene and uh, perfect it will be uh, the sort of magical image that you have in your mind about studying it under the feet of scholars um so but in a way because they were so negative it was actually a lot better than what i expected um and 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 it was just important to have um to have some background and some grounding in studies before going to such a foreign environment and how did you fit in with other students how did they treat you Um I mean, is it all a quite a supportive atmosphere You're all on the same journey or is it actually like any other university where you know you, you know especially as an outsider do you feel a bit detached or were you quite welcomed with open arms The 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 tricky thing about Al-Azhar is um you know it's 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 a institution in a third world country not to put any uh sugar coating on it um and it's affected by you know where it is and it's affected by aspects of its own history um and there are a lot of problems it faces a lot of problems and that applies to the curriculum just as it applies to the political stances and all sorts of things that people can uh, can see needs reforming and needs uplifting but it's very difficult for those things to get fixed um so as a result of these um socio-economic factors um there are many people who are sitting in the class with you who don't really want to be there it's because they couldn't get into medicine they couldn't get into uh law or they couldn't get into even one of the other uh, faculties in the islamic part of the university that might be the reason that some of them are here in uh, in usul ad-din which is my uh, faculty So some of us have traveled thousands of miles to be there and some people just don't want to be there. Um and the problem is the teachers have to teach both types of people and we are not the same. You know, I'm someone who's reading a lot outside the class and I'm just keen and I want to I want to get everything that I can from this time that I'm here because I know that I've, I'm going back to my country, I've got a responsibility there. Uh I don't want to waste this time. But there's people who do want to waste time. Um so that can be quite a challenging thing to navigate really. Um when you told your family look I'm going to move abroad or I'm going to go study uh there I mean what was their reaction because I guess for many um Asian 
parents, you know, it's keep them cl- keep keep the kids close. I think you just got married. All these sort of fierce issues. Um, how did they respond when you said, "I'm going to go there for a few years and I'm going to stay there"? Um, because it happened a bit gradually, I think um, everybody kind of knew that was going to happen, and I think that um, people around me were always quite supportive of that because I think they could see in me that it's clearly something I was going to be interested in and that hopefully I would do well out of and it would only enhance the kind of things I was already doing, you know, the type of work I was doing in the community. It was clear that I want to focus on the kind of knowledge-based things. Um, You know, just some opportunities I had, strangely enough, was like when I was in Edinburgh, uh, I think because my recitation improved, uh, people suddenly uh, were like, okay, you can lead prayers and you can lead Jum'ah prayers. And people suddenly assumed that, you know, if you can recite Quran, you must be really knowledgeable, which is, you know, it doesn't really go hand in hand. But um, people started, you know, coming, asking me all sorts of questions. And at some point, I just thought to myself, you know what, if people are going to assume that I have knowledge, I'd better just go and get some knowledge. Um so it was kind of a natural progression from situations I found myself in that I felt, well, um, this is what follows. And uh, and my family were very understanding of that. And I don't know, I think I must have really, really chilled out parents because they never discouraged me ever. And when you were there, did you ever feel like giving up? Did you say, actually, this, this is not working or this is not for me or... I need to or did you always were determined that I'm going to finish this and that's it I, I never had that kind of um, situation while I was uh, while I was studying abroad um, there were plenty of things that were frustrating about being in Egypt and you know just life there um, and like I say my wife's patience is exemplary and um, you know it, it would have been to try to make more comfort for her would be one of the main things that I would have uh, would have made me hesitate about staying. But I think that when I reached, um, you know, the end of my studies, that was really the end of my tether as well. And I'm glad that it finished when it did because I, I probably would have run out of patience. I didn't, uh, and I had friends who did run out of patience. Tell us about your next item. Uh, the next item is... Um, Another hadith, it's a very famous hadith, it's authentic hadith in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, which means none of you truly believes until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. Um, so there are so many lessons in this and I'm not really necessarily going to talk about uh, all of that, but um, the basic principle here is something which people have called the golden rule. The golden rule, they say, is like um, treat others as you like to be treated. And there was just at some point I ended up on a really a journey with this particular hadith because I saw somebody claiming that well, Islam doesn't have the golden rule. And it was like, well, obviously this hadith, everyone knows this hadith. And that person was saying, no, but it's only for your Muslim brother, right? Isn't that the wording of the hadith loves for his brother? So I started probing into this, and I, and I, you know, found that there are other narrations, and you know, that have been also for this hadith and similar hadiths, which say loves for people, loves for mankind, or whatever. 
And not only that, but I found that this basic principle, the golden rule as it's called, can be found in numerous ayat of the Quran, numerous hadiths, um, and and that you know it's it's just it's a it's a human ethical guideline that you understand you 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 understand how not to be treated. You know, you, you, you understand how not to treat people by thinking how you would not want to be treated. And that is found in numerous ayat of the Quran. So I wrote a paper about this, you know, around 2010 and then I updated it in 2012. And it was really nice that it was actually picked up by this philosopher called Harry Gensler, who's written a book called Ethics and the Golden Rule. Um, and, he, you know, he, he included me in the sort of timeline of of golden rule thinkers, which was which was really, uh, which was really nice. And sticking, I guess, along that the, the lines of academia, um, you're also studying for a PhD, as I mentioned. Um, can you explain what your PhD topic is about? Um, so my PhD is at, is at SOAS, as you mentioned, and my supervisor is uh, is a very celebrated uh, scholar called uh, Professor Muhammad Abdul Halim, and he's a translator of the Quran as well. That's what that's what he's probably most famous for. Um, and I'm studying um, methods of tafsir, particularly um, tafsir of the Quran through the Quran. Um, the fancy word that I'm using in the title of my thesis is intra-Quranic hermeneutics. Um, and the idea is how do parts of the Quran get used by you know the mufassirin to explain other parts? What's the idea behind that what's the mechanisms and the theories behind that what are the methods that are applied and what should be applied um, so all of that is to help understand how tafsir of the quran is done by focusing on on this particular aspect i mean as somebody as a lay person who doesn't is you know have a lot of knowledge in this area my first question would be well is this not something that's been examined and explored over centuries by our eminent scholars in the past what is it different or what do you hope to add because i guess phds are about new learning new mm. understandings and stuff so what what is the real emphasis now to look at this area well i, I get asked that a lot and you'd be surprised as i was surprised how little has actually been said about it um because normally when i mention it to people uh, they will say something like Oh yeah, tafsir of Quran through Quran. Yeah, you just do tafsir of Quran through Quran. You know, it's just you know. Um, but then, but if you were to ask deeper questions about it, it hasn't really been written about in much depth. You know, it was just taken for granted that yeah, you should refer to the whole Quran when drawing conclusions about it. Um, but yeah, you'd be surprised how much detail really has come up. And and I, I do look at the classical discussions and the sources and and trace these things to see what was said um, and what remains to be said um, so it's 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 been an interesting journey over the past few years and inshallah I submit the thesis very soon tell us about your next item so the next item uh, ties in with this topic actually because it's an ayah from surah Luqman um, so surah 31 verse 13 وَإِذْ قَالَ لُقْمَانُ لِبْنِهِ وَهُوَ يَعِظُهُ يَا بُنَيَّ لَا تُشْرِكْ بِاللَّهِ إِنَّ الشِّرْكَ لَظُلْمٌ عَظِيمٌ When Luqman, 
and he is considered to be a wise man, something, he may be a prophet, but it's not really known. When Luqman said to his son while he was instructing him, O oh my son, do not associate anything with Allah. Indeed, association, i.e. shirk, is a great injustice. So the reason this ties in with what we were just discussing is that um, there's a famous example where the Prophet ﷺ actually explained one part of the Qur'an using another, which he was using this ayah. The other ayah says that the only people who are going to be safe are those who do not mix their iman, their faith, with zulm, which means wrongdoing. So when the companions heard that, they became concerned and worried they said which of us does not have some zulm which of us doesn't wrong himself in some way by committing sins so the prophet said no the meaning there is uh, is referring to shirk is those who do not mix their faith with associating partners with allah and then he recited this ayah as if to say did you not hear in fact some narrations say he said have you not heard what luqman said to his son which is shirk is a great zulm so that's an example and just shows you the the validity of explaining parts of the Qur'an with the other. Um, but this actually has a, another great significance for me at the moment because I've just completed, um, along with a very talented um, cinematographer locally called Azam Khan, we have completed a film called um, Father and Son, The Wisdom of Luqman. And it's a recitation film. It's like five and a half minutes long. We got a very famous Qari to be in this video who is uh, Sheikh Muhammad Jibril. Um, also another uh, promising Qari from uh, from the US and Morocco called Yusuf Adghush. Um, and what was happening is that they are reciting these ayahs from Surah Luqman. And we have really used a lot of visual illustration to connect um, with the meanings and to illustrate those meanings, and it's been it's been over a year since uh, I started on this project. Inshallah, we'll see the light very soon. I'm very excited to see how people will respond to this, and it's really the the evolution of what Quranica has been doing in the past. Um, it's now it's now this filmmaking. And it sounds like you're I guess you're always buzzing with ideas of how to you know present or make things like the Quran and Islam accessible to people and I guess using very modern methods as well you know um, I mean are you, are, you, are you somebody who's always buzzing with ideas and a lot going on in your head and constantly reflecting and thinking and saying actually do you have to sometimes suppress all of these thoughts and that those ideas um, yeah I mean I, ideas um, are in some way the easy bit it's a question of how you how you turn those into something. But what's happened a lot of times in my life is I have certain ideas and I'm not immediately able to do anything about them. But then the opportunity comes along later. Um, so it's good to have ideas and to even develop them. Sometimes I'd go and you know write it out and actually make a proposal. And then that goes nowhere. But then a few years later, I can take that proposal and and, and it's almost ready to go. And this aspect of making Qur'an accessible to a lot of people, I guess, is linked very much in, uh, with the Bayina Institute that you're involved with. And you're um, the head of research. What, what does that mean? And what's, I guess, your role? Because uh, Bayina is a very prestigious sort of institution now led by, uh, founded by uh, Ustad Noman Ali Khan. Uh, I mean, that's right. I mean, I, I have 
admired Bayina for a long time, admired Ustad Numan for a long time. And um, while I was still studying in Egypt, you know, I, I reached out to him and tried to, you know, basically just establish. To be honest, I just wanted to say to him, what you're doing is great and Allah bless you and, you know, let's communicate. That's really all. Um, that was some years ago now. Um but then you know it, it it flowered a bit more, and you know I felt like you know I'd like his work to be supported with something that I could see it didn't yet have, which was a proper research agenda. So research can mean two things: one is uh, like preparing content. So for example, these uh, talks and courses that that he's delivering, that other instructors are delivering, that needs the background work. So that's one of the things that I'm involved with. And, you know, we have a team who work on things as well. It's just helping to prepare the materials that will turn into those presentations and so on. Uh, I can't uh, overstate uh, how much of it is also just his personal genius as a, as a you know, as a teacher and a presenter. Um, but we work very closely on certain things like um, he's been over the past, you know, since Ramadan, been presenting Surat al-Baqarah. And, uh, you know, since I joined Bayina after Ramadan, you know, since then, we've been really collaborating on on studying this surah together. And, um, and and it's been a wonderful experience for me. So that's the preparation research. The other side is um, like more of the academic side, uh, you know, producing research papers and publications, books, which uh, touch on different aspects of Quranic studies that, that look at updating the field. So something like my PhD research now, um, is a contribution to to Quranic knowledge, inshallah, and you know could work as something that 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 gets people to to explore things further and to take scholarship forward. Now, Ustad Noman, he calls you his Tafsir buddy, um, and he's one of the most recognizable Islamic personalities in the world. Um, I mean, with spending time with him, what have you noticed about him that? makes him so unique in terms of are there any characteristics or aspects that strike you that I guess the more that you've got to know him well I mean um, what's interesting is that he did not take the kind of um, particular formal study route that um, that I took for example in Al-Azhar or one of these institutions um, he studied a lot from so many teachers and he's gained from a wide variety of teachers and different experiences that he's had. And sometimes people come and they say, um, you know, I want to be like you. They're talking to him, of course. Um, how do I become another Noman Ali Khan? Well, it's difficult because, you know, everybody's got their own unique uh, journey. Um, but what really uh, stands out with him is his creativity. Uh, he's got a way of connecting things. He's got a way of explaining things and making them relevant to people um, and he's got a way of just drawing out meanings from the Quran that here's the thing so some of the people who again followed my kind of route and are you know formally trained scholars or whatever um, they can be a bit sniffy and sort of like oh, who is this person to talk about the Quran but I think that those who you know are fair and actually know their subject well enough as well they have to recognize that what he's saying, you know, has a lot of profound, um, you know, very purposeful, very relevant, and very correct observations about the Quran. 
Um, but what I also admire about him is that he uh, wants to surround himself with people who can also critique and can discuss and can debate ideas. And I've found that he's extremely responsive to critique. And, and, and that's one of my jobs as well. It's really to uh, put the brakes on some of the ideas as well, you know, because it's my job to go back to the books and to see, okay, this thought that you've had here, can it be supported with reference to your tradition and to what the Mufassirin have said? Or is it controversial? Or is there some explanation that we can find that, that, that solves this? And I found time and again that he's extremely humble in, in taking those things on board. And I think that's something that people don't necessarily know about him. And this aspect of, I think, coming up with these new connections, new understandings and stuff, uh, or reflections, is that something, do you think, has come through just immense study and hard work or is it something about bit just instinct and it's just something that comes to him through through other avenues it's definitely both um he's worked very hard to get where he is um he's studied very hard and you know it at the same time i think that allah grants things to people according to their sincerity and according to their you know their longing for him um, and I think those things can't always be accounted for. So tell us about your next item. So the next item um, is uh, is kind of what got me my job at Bayina, in a strange way. Um, this is a, a part of an ayah, really, from Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 212. But it's also the same phrase as a few places in the Qur'an, where Allah says, وَاللَّهُ يَرْزُقُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ بِغَيْرِ حِسَابٍ and Allah gives provision to whomever He wills without account. Um, and I was speaking before about my last day in Egypt and uh, the ayah that was on my mind. It wasn't really this one, but I was actually presenting uh, something about this ayah because I was invited to do some recording of videos in the Al-Azhar Mosque for, for an official YouTube channel they have called Azhar TV. And these videos were about um, the, the, the miracles of the Qur'an and the language of the Qur'an. And I was taking this from a, a particular book, um, which in English is called the Qur'an, An Eternal Challenge. Uh, an Eternal Challenge. Um, and basically when I came to this ayah, the sheikh who's written the book, he was explaining that this wording is so precise that it contains at least five very different senses and meanings i won't go through them all now but i could mention two of them because one is like kind of obvious that allah gives you know any amount of provision to whomever he wills okay without account i.e without any limit to how much he gives but another one of the uh, interesting meanings is that he gives provision in a way that you can't even account for Okay, and in another ayah, min la yahtasib. He gives him provision from where he could never have expected it. Um, so this little video, eventually what happened is that I made it into a short clip that's maybe three minutes long or something, and I'm talking about the five meanings, and I'm sitting there with my Azhari um, turban on and all that stuff, sitting in the Azhar mosque. And I made this little snippety video, and somehow... Usad Noman was shown this video um, and this was after we, we already had some communications going and he already knew who I am but 
um, I think that seeing that video was one of the things that made him feel like, you know, I, I, I ought to come on board the Bayina family. I, I, th I think it might have won, won him over in the end. And really, the meaning of the ayah applies here. You know, how could I have planned uh, that he will see this video and like it? And, um, so there's a, a tip for you all out there. If you make a nice, nice enough video, <laughs> you don't know who's going to watch it. You don't know who's going to watch it. Okay. Now, as we're coming towards the end of the interview, um, I'm sure throughout the journey that you've had, and we've only touched on some various aspects, um, there must have been some really difficult times and some challenges and hardships. Um, what has got you through during those most difficult and challenging times? I think, um, by the grace of Allah, I've, I've not maybe had the same level of challenges that lots of people around me have, you know. Um, yes, we've lost uh, loved ones and, uh, and dear ones in our family. And, and, you know, these are all challenges where, where faith just really is the anchor to everything. Um, I think, you know, when, when, when things have got difficult along the path of gaining knowledge, um, it's really the purpose um, knowing that I'm doing it for myself, actually, well, it sounds selfish. But if I was doing it for other people, I may be more tempted to give it up. But knowing that it was this um, burning desire in myself to know and to not be ignorant or to try to just uh, replace the ignorance with knowledge as much as possible, um, this is what has kept me going all the time. And it keeps me going today. Um. Now, obviously, you're very busy, you know, you, you, you travel a lot as well. When you're not studying and working, um, I mean, how do you relax? How do you, you know, what do you do for your downtime? Um, what makes you laugh? Um, well, my, my family really makes me laugh a lot and probably scream a lot as well. Um, I've got very young kids and that's really, you know, a, a big preoccupation in life. Um and um, it's a big challenge in life, but a really beautiful one and fun. And um, just seeing seeing the children laughing is really uh, just the best thing. Um, yeah, I'd like to say that I'm sort of working hard all the time, you know, twenty four seven. I'm I'm sure that a lot of time gets it gets wasted. But even just thinking and you know staring out the window sometimes. Uh, I do insist it is actually work. It's kind of uh, you know intellectual work. Proper academic there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's intellectual work in a way. It's, um, uh, and that's the hardest thing. Like when you're trying to think about lofty ideas, and then a child screams, you know, because I work from home. Yeah. That's one of the challenging things. Is just trying to keep, um, trying to keep everything really uh, at the top of your game. And other times when you just want to do something that's totally not connected and not thinking along those lines? I mean, what what will you do when you need that time to yourself? Um, well, you know, we don't have a, a television at home, but, um, you know, unfortunately we do have the internet and, you know, YouTube or Facebook or whatever, and probably way too much time gets, uh, gets spent on that. But even then I try to, uh, I try to use those things for, for benefit as well and for for connecting with people and and sharing things that can benefit them so we're going to come to your final item uh, Sheikh Zuhayb so tell us a bit about the final item that you've chosen 
Uh, the final item is just a quote um, from the tafsir of Imam Razi. I've worked so far on two major translation projects. Um, one of them is the first volume of tafsir of Razi. Um, and neither of these big projects has yet been translated um, because that decision rests with uh, with the publishers. But um, uh, recently I've taken to posting these little snippets from Imam Razi's tafsir on my on my Facebook page and uh, it's just it's, people have got quite excited about being able to see the final um, published work inshallah and this is something that's never been translated into English before no it's never been translated and yeah it was a it was a big job <laughs> to put it mildly <laughs> Um, but this is just one, just one of these little snippets that that you know I've, I've enjoyed translating and sharing. He says, "The greatest of beings is Allah, and the greatest knowledge is His knowledge. Since the greatest of beings cannot be known except by the greatest knowledge, it is seen that none truly knows Allah except Allah." Um, so it's a very philosophical work, and it's got a lot of complicated things in it. But um, it's also got these. Nice uh, standout kind of gems in it. So as we're going to cast you away to this island, um, you'll be alone. How do you think you're going to manage with the solitude? Um, I, th- I think it's, um, you know, a, a believer is never alone. Would be my do you think answer. you'll enjoy time to yourself or do you think you'll struggle and find it difficult? Um, well, you know, I, I don't know what, do I know what's happening with my family and they're okay? And but you know, assuming that everyone's happy without me, uh, I think I'll be just just fine. Okay. And on this uh, desert island, you can take a book along with you. Um, apart from the Quran, what would you take with you? Well, I'm I'm going to cheat slightly because for me, a book is usually not just one volume. A book can be lots of volumes. So I'm going to take with me the Tafsir of Imam Ibn Ashur, a 20th century uh, mufassir. Um, because I'd like to use that time to really um, just explore Allah's words better and and this tafsir I think would be my best companion to help me. And you take and you can take one luxury item with you. What would that be? Well, uh, I I, I've, I think it's going to be a smartphone, uh, but I've just realised that I might not have four G uh, <laughs> connection on the island. Um, but I think nowadays, uh, as they say, no man is an island. Um, I mean, no man, not no man. <laughs> no man is an island. But I think what's happened now is that we've all become islands, you know, because we've got our own phone and we're in our own worlds. But I don't think I could do without it. So, Sheikh Sahib, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, you know, the, learn- the listeners will have learned a lot. And um, may Allah subhanahu wa bless you and continue to give you strength. Uh, and wisdom and guidance and to continue with the positive work that you're doing inshallah please remember us in your du'as and uh, we wish you all the best assalamu alaikum wa alaikum assalam rahmatullah thank you for listening to desert island gems let us know what you think of the show on the radio ramadan facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on mcmuslim.tv For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.